0: Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue one in front of you that you can find our passage on page 618. 618. We're going to be looking at just seven verses this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. As you're turning there, I just got to say, I say this a lot, but it's because I think it a lot. I love singing with you guys. It is one of the joys of my life to get to sing songs to our King with this particular body of people. So thank you for singing, and thank you for singing like you mean it. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, There is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning I want you to consider with me two different real worship services with me. I'm going to share about both of these worship services from first-hand accounts of people who were there and actually saw them. And I want you to listen and see what's different about these two worship services. All right? The first worship service took place in Cincinnati this past February on Super Bowl Sunday. Reporter Kristen Cornett tells how this church, quote, has used football to inspire services on a day that usually sees low attendance in church. She goes on to talk about how as you approach the church, the first thing you notice is that people are tailgating in the church parking lot, grilling their brats and their dogs and they're having their nachos. Then you come a bit closer and as you come up to the building, you can see the games outside where you can try to kick a field goal or try to throw the football through the hole. There's the sound of marching bands all around kind of making you feel more like a college atmosphere. In the reporter's words, it's football and church coming together. Then you step inside. Inside, you'll find a giant stage that's been covered in green astroturf to look just like a football field. During the service, which they have called the Super Bowl of preaching, the pastors, all wearing football jerseys, compete against each other as they deliver their short messages With the fans, I mean, sorry, I mean congregation encouraged to cheer for whichever one they like the best. There's even, quote, a fun twist that challenges them to work silly surprise phrases into their speeches. Throughout the service, the screens show original commercials made by the church, which don't fail to draw laughs from the crowd. And of course there's a halftime show featuring the worship band with the lights turned out and the audience giving light sticks so they can move just like you would see on TV. The whole morning is summed up by the reporter as, quote, lots of fun. That's our first worship service. Here's the second. This worship service took place quite a bit earlier than that, a few thousand years ago. Not in Cincinnati, but in the Middle East. Brought to us by our reporter, the prophet Moses. He says this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Therefore why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and we will do it. Slightly different services, huh? One drew near for lighthearted fun. The other drew near in holy fear. One encountered games. The other encountered God. And you can learn a lot about, these different, about the God that these different groups came to worship, can't you? The first group's God must not be all that impressive or important. I mean, after all, they have to use gimmicks to get people to worship him. He needs football to capture their attention. And sure, his words can maybe be inspirational sprinkled in there, but not authoritative. He's fun and silly And not to be taken too seriously. The second group's God, he's mighty and majestic, terrifying and thrilling. He's holy, holy, holy. He's a consuming fire. He's a God that stops your mouth and makes you fall down in reverence and awe and wonder. He's not tame. He's not safe. He's not someone you can handle or manage or keep under control. He's awesome in power, breathtaking in beauty, and glorious beyond description. He is not a God to be trifled with. He's a God to be feared. Too often, our worship today looks much closer to the first example. Much of our worship lacks the fear of God. We become casual and nonchalant about approaching the holy God. We forget who it is we are coming to. And we just play games with religion. So the preacher's goal in this passage and my goal in this sermon is to help us put the fear of God into our worship okay now just by way of reminder if you're just joining us we're in the middle of this book called Ecclesiastes and there's this guy the preacher who is the one speaking to us in that and his goal in the book is to help us understand life under the sun life in this broken fallen world here and now he wants to know things like how does it work what should we be doing What's it all about? And this morning he wants us to see worship plays a key role in all of that. In fact, if you've been tracking with us, there's a massive shift in our passage from the chapter before it. If you just scan your eyes over the passage in chapter 4, you'll notice God wasn't actually mentioned at all. You see that? But now he's mentioned seven times in seven verses. This is actually the highest concentration of so-called God talk in the whole book. Our focus this morning has shifted to how we are to think about him, how we are to think about God, and how we come to worship him. And I want you to notice right away that his message is for church-going people, right? We can't tune it out. It's about those right off the bat. It says, when you go to the house of God. So he assumes they're going to the house of God. He's not talking to the people out there, not saying, oh, this is really good if they could hear this. He's talking to us in here this morning. Here's how one writer described his audience. He said, his exhortations are for people who do go to church, but sometimes find it hard to pay attention, whose thoughts wander when they pray, and who are full of good intentions about serving God, but have trouble following through. They're for people who know they need to get involved in outreach, but usually come up with some excuse for not joining a ministry right now. They've started a serious program for personal Bible studies several dozen times, but have never finished. They try to pay attention in church, but usually spend half their time thinking about the week up ahead. In other words, this is a message for us, for every day Normal people. It's a message we need to hear if we're going to understand life and worship rightly under the sun. Now, as we look at our text, the preacher gives us actually a clear outline. It breaks nicely down into four main commands, then with motives given for each. So here's our outline based off of his outline. These are four ways he wants to help us put the fear of God into our worship. Verse one open your ears. Verses 2 and 3, watch your words. Verses 4 and 5, give God what he deserves. And verses 6 and 7, don't play games. Now, I'm going to tell you up front so that you don't panic later. As we walk through these, they're actually, the time spent on them will get progressively shorter. Okay? So don't panic when you get done with the first point and you're like, wow, we're going to be here until 2 o'clock. Okay? So let's start at the beginning. Look with me at verse 1. He says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So the first thing he tells us here is, Be careful when we come to worship. Guard your steps, he says. Now the context for him is that when they would go to the is talking about when they would go to the temple right or the house of god as he calls it now clearly we aren't going to a temple anymore but that doesn't mean that this text has no relevance for us because now the house of god is the people of god first peter 2 tells us that we like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house then paul adds in ephesians 2 that those in christ are members of the household of god built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So I want you to hear is coming to church is still coming to the house of God, but not because of the building you come to, but because of the people you gather with. It's the saints gathered that makes us the dwelling place of God. So for us, this message here in Ecclesiastes is like a warning on the door of the church. If you walked up for service this morning, you went to open the door, you're like, what does this sign say? In fact, one writer thinks that wouldn't actually be a bad idea. Here's what he said. He said, sometimes I think that all religious sites should be posted with signs reading, Beware the God. The places and occasions that people gather to attend to God, he says, are dangerous. They're glorious places and occasions, true, but they're also dangerous. Danger signs should be conspicuously placed as they are at nuclear power stations. Religion, he says, is the death of some people. Now, why would he say that? What makes, what in the world would make church Dangerous. I mean, and how is religion the death of some people? Surely that's just like embellishment for effect, right? Here's why he says that. Because it's so easy to just play the game of religion without realizing who it is we gather to worship or without our hearts actually worshiping. We can just show up to church out of tradition out of habit. Why do you go to church? Well, because we have since I was a little kid. Why do you go to church? Well, because I haven't missed a Sunday in four years. Sunday comes, we reluctantly roll out of bed, scramble to get out the door, we roll in a few minutes late, and all without once stopping to consider the awesome thing we're about to do. We say hi to some people, we sing some songs, hear a sermon, then make our plans for lunch, and it's really no different than if we were just headed over to our gathering of friends to hang out. But that's why we're warned here to guard our steps. As one commentator put it, be careful. Think of what you are about to do. You are not just dropping in on a neighbor for a friendly chat. You are not just passing time with a friend. You are going to the house of God. You are going to the place where the almighty creator stoops down to meet with you. As we sang earlier, yes, he bends down to bless us with an everlasting love. But friends, don't ever forget that he's the one who holds the heavens and commands the stars above. So be mindful Of who you are coming to worship. Then notice what he says. He says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. In other words, he says, when we come to worship, we should come open-eared, hungry to hear, ready to listen, eager to obey. Now, why is it better to listen? There's a few reasons. First, it shows a posture of receiving rather than giving. We've talked about that in Ecclesiastes before and here it comes again. It shows a posture of receiving rather than giving. Because when you come to listen to God's word read and preached and sung and prayed, you come eager to receive what God has to give you through his word. The promises, the instruction, the encouragement, the rebukes, the challenges, all of you say, yes, God, I'm ready, I want that. The fools in this verse though They come to give their sacrifices of thoughtless, empty worship. They came to give their attendance. Yeah, I'll show up, I'll do the thing, I'll check the box. But they did not come to listen. They didn't come to hear and believe and obey. They did not come to be confronted by God's word or comforted by God's word or changed by God's word. But we are to come worship to worship God ready to listen. Another reason why it's important we come ready to listen is because when you look at it, all of our worship is a response to what God has said, to his word. So the first act of worship is always to listen. In fact, I want you to take your bulletin and look at your order of service, your order of worship inside there. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. So if you don't count the welcome, because that's We're just kind of getting oriented. But our actual service proper, who speaks first? God does. He calls us to worship through his word. That's why our call to worship is from the Bible. It's because God is speaking through his word and through his people saying, come worship me. Then what happens? Then we respond. We respond by praising him through song. And then after we've seen his holiness and realize our sinfulness, we confess our sins. But then God speaks again. God speaks his word of pardon and forgiveness to us in the gospel. And we respond in songs of praise and thanksgiving for his grace and his mercy. And we pray for his help before the sermon. Then God speaks to us through the sermon. What do we do? We respond and worship again. And then our service closes with God speaking so that his word of benediction is left ringing in our ears as we head into another week. We come to worship to listen. Why? Because when the holy God speaks, you listen. This is the God whose speaking made the people tremble and beg for Moses to be a mediator so that they didn't die. Friends, that same God still speaks today. Not only that, we come to listen because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So if you're here this morning, you say, I want to trust God more. I long to have stronger faith and deeper faith. You know what you need to do? Listen up listen up but we need to be clear that this word for listening doesn't only mean hearing it's full of that like when you tell your kids i need you to listen you don't just mean like, i need i need sounds to go into your ears and for your audio receptors to hear them what do you mean you need to do what i say you need to obey because we want to be more than hearers we want to be doers of god's word unlike these fools in verse one Remember, they thought their sacrifices were all that God wanted. If they just showed up and did this whole God thing for the morning, wasn't that good enough? I mean, wouldn't that, then they'd go back to real life. But God wasn't impressed by meaningless, insincere worship. Friends, he wants us to listen to and obey his word. Religious practices without real faith in God or real love for god are worthless to god and he makes that abundantly clear listen to just a few places proverbs 21 3 he says to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the lord than sacrifice so if you got to choose doing the religious sacrifice or doing righteousness and justice do the righteousness and justice Hosea 6.6 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. 1 Samuel 15.22 Samuel said Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen Than the fat of rams. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, if you're just doing the sacrifices and offerings because that's the religious thing to do and you're checking your boxes so you can get the good Christian sticker on your paper, he's saying, God doesn't want that. He wants you to listen to what he says and then do it. So, how is religion and coming to church dangerous? Let's go back to that. Because we can come too casually. Forgetting who God is. And because we can just do the actions of worship without the heart of worship. Friends, everything we do in church is meant, designed, intended to draw us closer to God. From the call to worship, to the songs, to the confession, to the assurance, to the prayer, to the sermon. Lord's Supper when we observe it. That's all meant to help our hearts draw closer to God. But those same things can be dangerous if they don't, in fact, lead us to greater awe and worship. And instead, we just go through them mindlessly. When we do, that can lead us to a casual, compartmentalized approach to God. That's what I do on Sunday morning from 10 to 11-ish. In fact, verse 1 says that these fools who worship God like this have gotten so used to this meaningless religion that they don't expect anything different. They no longer even know that they're doing evil. This is just how it is. Isn't, Isn't this what following God is? I show up, I give him the animal, he says some stuff, I go home, I keep living my life. Isn't that what church is? I just go, we sing some songs, I hear a sermon, say hi to some people, I go back and I live my life. Friends, we must be careful if we think that God only cares that you are here and he doesn't care what's actually going on in your heart. So let me just ask you, let's get to the point. Why did you come to church today? I'm thrilled you're here. I mean that. But why did you come? Do you have a deep desire to draw near to the holy God of the universe do you come to church with open ears ready to listen and let God speak whether it's through the sermon through the songs through prayers through conversations with one another are you coming to listen I was thinking about this and you know how sometimes in the middle of the night you kind of wake up and you hear just a weird sound right your mind starts to like running a little while, your imagination kicks in and you start wondering, did it, what was that? Did, did I hear something? Oh no, what, what was that? And so then as you're trying to figure it out, you, you, it's like you turn your ears up. You like are listening so hard. Was, it, was that somebody? Was it? And the way that you're listening so hard, are you coming to church like that? Are your ears that attentive? Like that you wanna hear the slightest thing God might be speaking to you. This morning, Are you eager to hear, ready to believe and obey? Friends, God is speaking this morning. So let's put the fear of God into our worship by opening our ears and listening. That's our first one. Second, we must not only listen, we must also watch our words. Look at verses two and three. He says, be not rash with your mouth, Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. In other words, what he's telling us here is when we come to worship, we shouldn't be quick to simply tell God what what we think he wants to hear. Don't just let your heart be hasty. Like, oh, I know, I, know, I know the script, right? I know we praise you, God. We love you, God. You're so awesome. We adore you. Those can be great things. Or they can be condemning things if they're just rolling off your tongue with no heart behind them. He's telling us, don't just say a bunch of spiritual sounding things or sing words to songs or pray along with prayers that you don't mean just because you think saying the words is all that matters. One writer helpfully reminded me this week that when God listens to our worship, he's not listening through headphones as much as he's listening through a stethoscope. What he meant is he's not just listening to hear what we say, he's listening to our heart. That was so helpful for me. The reason that's helpful is because every time a mouth is open, A heart is on display. So what is being displayed about your heart through the words you say? I want you to think about the words you say, particularly as we gather, but it doesn't have to be limited. Are your words revealing a heart that's focused on self? Are your words, are the things that come out of your mouth all about you and about all that you've done? Just sharing stories and accomplishments and highlights of your life are they self-focused are your words revealing a heart of discontent do you find that most of the words that come out are some form of grumbling complaining criticizing are your words revealing a heart of fear where what comes out of you is often about what you're worried about or Or are they words that you're saying to try to control things in your life so that the thing you're afraid of doesn't happen? Are you trying to manipulate the situation because you're afraid? Or what do your words reveal about your treasure? If all I knew about you, if I just had a transcript of what came out of your mouth, never met you, what would your words reveal to me that you value most? What do you talk about most? What do you talk about most passionately? In other words, what do your words reveal about your heart? The preacher says here that in worship, we should let our words be few. Why is that? Well, he says it's because God is in heaven and we are on earth. In other words, again, he's telling us, remember who he is he is the high and holy one who inhabits eternity and we are just dust imagine back in the day being a peasant slaving away in the fields with nothing to your name you're a nobody with nothing and then one day you get to meet the king do you think that peasant just walks up casually hey what's up king and just starts telling, like, hey, you know, today my day's been going pretty good. Uh, we could use some more food down here, though. And, uh, oh, did I tell you about the, the, the crop I brought in yesterday? Oh, man, it was good. It's probably because I'm so strong, though. And, uh, and there's my wife, although all the ladies in the village love me. Uh, like, you wouldn't do that, would you? Why? Because he's so high above you. You would be quiet and still and wait till the king speaks. And when you did speak, you would choose your words very carefully because of who you are and because of who he is. How much more then should we be mindful that God is not our peer? When we come before him, we come before our creator. We come before our king. So we shouldn't just say things flippantly or mindlessly just because that sounds good, sounds spiritual. We shouldn't think that more words means more worship. In fact, when Jesus taught us to pray, what did he say? He said, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father who is in heaven. He said, don't say a lot of things. Just remember who you're talking to, the one who knows it all. And so when you address him, address him as father, yes, but address him as your father in heaven. And you are on earth. Don't just say a bunch of stuff. Let your words be few. He is God in heaven and we are on earth. And this is so important. In fact, remembering that truth, as simple as it may seem, that truth is crucial to our worship. The fact that God is so infinitely far beyond us that he transcends us that he's way more than us is what makes the gospel we believe so incredible on the one hand that reality is what makes sin so awful so horrendous we know this because it's one thing you read about in the paper. Or maybe, maybe you've witnessed it. There's, it's one thing when a guy attacks another guy, say, in a bar. There's a bar fight. Two guys have a little too much to drink, and they kind of have a little kerfluffle over there. Like, that's not good, but not a big deal. Now, it's something different if that same guy were then later to go attack the president. That wouldn't just get a slap on the wrist and a misdemeanor. That would probably mean his life what's the difference? Because of who he attacked. What makes our sins so awful is that we on earth dare to rebel against the God who is in heaven. We dare to ignore him, disregard him, blatantly disobey him. We dare to make our life revolve around us instead of him. And that's what makes sin so awful, is because of who he is and who we are. And yet, the fact that God is so far beyond us is also what makes the gospel so incredibly amazing. Friends, the God of heaven came down to us. The God who was so terrifying that people rightly begged for a mediator to stand between them and God. The holy God we sang about who was only able to be approached through sacrifice. He came to us lowly creatures. He sent his own son to die and suffer for us as the perfect sacrifice. So now this Jesus is the better mediator. He's way better than Moses. He stands between us and God so we won't die. And now in him, we can draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And not only that, in Jesus, if you are a believer and you are in him, friend, you have been credited with his perfect worship. Jesus perfectly loved and honored and obeyed the Father. And now we read in Hebrews 2, Jesus says, In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. In other words, Jesus is the perfect worshiper. And when we trust in him, his worship is credited as ours. So that now God accepts yours and my imperfect worship in Christ. And when we fail to worship God perfectly, he doesn't get angry and destroy us. Because on the cross, God poured out his anger and destroy Jesus in our place. So now we don't try to worship the right way so that God will accept us. Please hear that. These calls to worship God rightly are not in order that you will be accepted by God. We are accepted by God through Jesus. Jesus. So that now in him, it's our joy and our privilege to worship the way he wants us to. We worship the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, as Psalm 2 says. We let our words be few because he is God in heaven and we are on earth. That's the second thing we see about putting the fear of God into our worship. Then we come to our third way. Look at verses 4 and 5. Says when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. All right, what's going on here? What are these vows he's talking about? Well, you might remember we talked about them a little bit back in Psalm 50 this summer when we were there. These vows were promises made by people who were in need. They were in a jam. There was something hard they were facing, they, they needed God to show up. And so they vowed to God that if he would just help them, then they would give him the praise for it. Say, I will acknowledge that you're the one who did it, God. Now, often these vows, they, they kind of, they were official in a sense that they would go to the temple and they would make these vows, vows in the temple with promises to make a specific offering. So God, if you'll do this for me, I will bring the sacrifice that's due for a vow. You can read about these vows. They're actually in Leviticus 18. There's, there's rules and regulations as to how you should offer these vow offerings. One of the things it tells us in Leviticus 18 is that if you bring a vow offering, it has to be a male without blemish. It says if you're going to do it, you've got to bring one that's perfect. Don't bring some junky one. Don't bring the one that you're like, I don't want that anyway, so I guess I'll sacrifice it. So what would happen is people would make these vows but what it's talking about in our passage is after they make these vows, God helps them, he provides for them, he delivers them but then they never pay up. They got what they wanted and they'd rather hang on to that sheep so they just move on and say, oh, that's good. I mean, God came through but I guess I'll just move on and nobody will know. Or sometimes they did pay up but they would just try to give God the, the junk that they didn't really want. Malachi 1 actually talks about this. It says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Saying, you promised this, but you're like, ah, that one will hurt. That would, that would, I like that one. Here, God, you can have this. <laughs> I didn't really want that one anyway. So whether they don't pay at all or they pay with their leftovers, they fail to give God what he deserves. And this is a serious thing. Deuteronomy 21 talks about this and it says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin." But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So the preacher is warning us here. He says, Give God what he deserves. He says, You didn't have to, but you said, God, if you come through for me in this way, I'm going to give you this. Now, we may not record them at the temple there's no official board out here in the foyer in case you ever were looking for the vow board but sometimes we still do this don't we sometimes we can make our own vows to the Lord God if you just help me right now in this thing that I'm facing I promise I'm going to get it together I'm going to go back to church God God from now on I'm going to be all in you are going to be first place in my life. But God, I, but you know what I'm facing right now. And I need you to come through. And if you do, no more of that other, no more of that other stuff. I'll stop messing around. God, if you just forgive me for this sin this time, I promise I won't do it again. God, I'll never go to that website again. God, I'll never have that much to drink again. God, I'll, I'll break off the relationship. Just this, this one time, God, if you just get me out of the consequences of it or forgive me for it, I won't do it. Or God, if you, can just, if you would just provide this job, what I really want this job, if you provide this raise that I'm up for, God, I promise I will, that extra income, I'm gonna be generous. Oh, I can't wait to support the missionaries and give to the church. I can't, Lord, if, if you just give me this, I promise. Or often we experience some of God's greatness Maybe we're stirred up at a, at a camp or a conference or maybe just a, a moving worship experience, whether it's church on Sunday morning or your own time with the Lord. And so you're stirred up to make these great promises and declarations. God, I'm gonna go to the nations for you. God, I wanna, I'm gonna give my life to ministry. God, this week, everybody I see, I'm gonna tell about you I'm going to share the gospel with every person I meet this week. God, this year, I'm going to finish that Bible reading plan. I'm going to have a quiet time every day, God. What the passage is telling us is don't make promises you don't intend to keep. Instead, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And if you do make God a promise, keep it. Give God what he deserves. Give what you owe him. And you say, well, what we owe him? What do we owe God? (laughs) All of us. Not just our lips, but our lives, our hearts, our desires. Not just our blemished leftovers of time and money and affection. That's why the greatest command is what? Notice how it starts to hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. What's he saying there? He's saying because God is one, undivided God, he deserves our whole, undivided hearts. So let's give God what he deserves. And then finally, the same, he's still kind of on the same topic and it bleeds right into his last charge, don't play games with God. Look at verses six and seven. It says, Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. What he's talking about here is Again, the same context, you've made a vow and because it's officially recorded is they actually would have people who would go follow up on unpaid vows. Like, hey, Joe promised a sheep and it's been three months, you need to go check on him. So they were like the, the vow police. And so he says, when those people show up to collect what you promised, do not tell them, oh, 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 that, that was a mistake, I think there's been some kind of misunderstanding here. I just kind of got caught up in the moment. You know, there was a lot of emotions. The, the, the music was playing, and I was just really, I'd had a long week, and so I probably said some things I didn't really mean. You, you know what I'm talking about? In other words, he's saying, don't play games with your worship. Don't just try to manipulate God through your worship to give you what you want without actually intending to give him the love and trust and obedience he deserves. If you just play this game thinking that he's a genie you can rub and get what you want without ever having any reciprocal affection and trust and obedience, notice the stakes. God will be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands. Jesus also warned us, didn't he, about just going through the religious motions without a real heart of worship. He said, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And friends, when that happens, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember, that's why Israel was so terrified at Mount Sinai. They knew it was a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because they saw his power and his glory and his holiness. They saw God for who he is and they rightly trembled. It's why they wanted a mediator. They said, give us a mediator. Give us someone to stand between. And the great news, friends, is we have one. Because of Jesus, We can draw near to that same glorious God. And we don't need to come shriveling, shrinking back and worried about what's he going to do. We can come boldly with confidence. And we can know him and be known by him. And, And the craziest part is he doesn't merely tolerate us. He loves us. How do I know? How can I say that with such certainty? Because of the cross. He loved us enough to give his son to rescue us from our failing. He loved us enough that he would let us call him Father. What love has he shown us that we might be called children of God? And so we are. Friends, the great news about worship is that we have not come to what may be touched to a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was that sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. We haven't come to that. No. We have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let us put the fear of God back into our worship. Would you pray with me? Father, we long to have hearts that fear you. God, forgive us for the ways we don't. And would you stir up right, joyful fear of you. Not quaking, trembling, being afraid, but a a reverence, an awe, a wonder at your power and glory and majesty. Would we not have little views of you? Would we not just scrunch you into the corners of our lives, tuck you into our pockets as we go about our days. But God, would we stand amazed at how much higher and holier you are? And would that lead us to wonder that this high and holy one would care about us? Who is man that you are mindful of him? And yet you are. So God, would that just... Would that just wow us this week? Would we be freshly amazed at your glory and the fact that this glorious God loves us through Jesus? God, help us to give you all of our hearts because you are worthy of nothing less. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.